Welcome to this month's special programming series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry, on ReachMD XM157. His latest book has been described as spellbinding by the medical community. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is attorney Bill Colby. Bill Colby is the lawyer who represented the family of Nancy Cruzan in the first Right to Die case heard by the United States Supreme Court. He is a senior fellow with the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization in Alexandria, Alexandria, Virginia, and author of Unplugged, Reclaiming Our Right to Die in America, which won the American Medical Writers Association Medical Book of the Year Award and is now out in paperback. Bill Colby, welcome back to the Clinician's Roundtable. Good to be with you, Susan. Your book Unplugged, Reclaiming Our Right to Die in America, has been very well received by the medical community. This kind of reaction must be very gratifying. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, ab- absolutely, the reaction to the book in the medical community, I guess especially a book written by a lawyer, has been great. And my talk with doctors who have read the book has been gratifying as well. It's had a, a good reaction. Congratulations. Thank you. What about the general public? Well, it's certainly more than a book for doctors. It's written for a lay audience. As you know, I've I've worked in the area of law and the end of life for many years, and I find the best way people can navigate what's a pretty complicated topic is through stories. So this book is largely the telling of a whole variety of stories, many of them from the medical world, but all that involve day-to-day life, and and so they touch all of us. What are some of the stories that you tell in Unplugged? Of course, the highly public stories, the cases that I was involved in, like the Nancy Cruzan case, the more recent case of Terry Schiavo, but then just some stories about how we've come to this place of evolving medical technology. One of my favorites is the story of a doctor from England by the name of Cicely Saunders, who I know you know, was the the founder of the modern hospice movement, founded the first hospice in the world in London in 1967. And through her sheer force of will, we now have thousands of hospices across the world. Another one is talking with the people up at Medtronic about how they've developed different heart devices. And they, they sent me photos for the book of their first pacemaker and their current pacemaker. The current one obviously fitting easily into the palm of your hand, implantable near your collarbone. The first pacemaker developed not that many years ago did not look all that implantable, about the size of a 13-inch console TV pushed along on a cart in front of the patient with wires going from his pacemaker into his chest wall. And just a lot of these stories about how we've come into our modern medical technological world. And I guess last and maybe my favorite of all of the stories, I I talked with a doctor who's now retired, obviously, lives up near Boston, who in 1959, November of 59, was the very first doctor to shock with a defibrillator a, a patient on the bed lying there looking back up at him. And he told me about that amazing night and what they didn't know and what they learned. And and you think about where we've come from that night in 1959. So it's a book of stories about how that world has evolved. Having traveled across the country many times talking about end-of-life care, do you believe we've made any progress? Yes, certainly we've made progress. I think sometimes, especially people who work in this field, I, I often hear bioethicists 
say things like, you know, we've been working on this right to die stuff for 30 years since Karen Quinlan, and we still haven't figured it out. My take on it really is is kind of the opposite of that, that we've only been working on these questions for 30 years. They have come at us in a pretty amazing rush of technology. I'm, I'm a baby boomer. My parents' generation are the first people to ask what, when you stop to think about it, is a profound question. Is there something that this person who's trying to help me, this doctor, is offering that I might want to say no to? And it's really a new societal question, and we're just beginning to sort through it because doctors want to help their patients, patients want to be helped, but we've come to a point now where technology can't always solve our uh, medical problems, and and we have to talk through uh, that issue, and it's a complicated discussion, but but I think, as I say, it's a, a fairly new societal discussion. So we're getting better at it, but we're going to have plenty of opportunity in the uh, in the years ahead. In your book, you discuss how the definition of death has evolved in the United States. Give us a history lesson. That's a that's a perfect example of what I was just saying. For most of recorded time, when we were dead, we were dead. Our heart, our lungs, our brain all stopped at roughly the same time. There wasn't a definition of death in state statutes. There wasn't a definition in case law. Death simply was. Uh, Technology changed that. Think about being, uh, it would be be fascinating to have been sitting in the meeting in the Harvard Medical School in 1969 when the doctor at the head of the table said to the assembled group of doctors, "Our, our topic today is we're going to change the definition of what it means to be deaf. Uh, to, to, to be dead, the same definition we've had for all of human history. I mean, what a place that technology has brought us to. Now we have state statutes defining death where someone's uh, what is commonly referred to as brain death, where your heart and lungs are functioning, supported by machines, but there's no brain activity. But even as recently as 1993, the one state, New Jersey, put an exception in their state law to the definition of brain death for an individual's religious beliefs. So if as part of your belief system and you believe that the heart must stop for death to have occurred, it cannot be declared brain dead. So you have the incredible situation where you can have two human bodies next to one another in a hospital room and one by law would be dead, and one by law would be alive. It's just a brave new world that we're into. Much of it wonderful. Too often when we have this discussion, people don't stop to recognize how much good medical technology has given us. Extended life, high quality of life, but it still brings hard questions at the end. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is attorney Bill Colby discussing his book, Unplugged, Reclaiming Our Right to Die in America, which won the American Medical Writers Association Medical Book of the Year Award and is now out in paperback. Mr. Colby, how do you respond to people who say, I could never discontinue life support? What if my loved one wakes up? I've been hearing about this in the news a lot lately. I get that question a a fair bit when I'm talking on this issue. I I think it's a component of what my basic advice is, which is 
communication is everything when making decisions about end of life, and it is critically important to work hard to gather as much information and the best information that you possibly can, and then you make the best judgment in consultation with your doctor, with the doctor of your loved one, that you can. There will always be stories in the news of recovery, and that's good when that happens. It Doctors looking at these questions will say that if there's one story of someone emerging back to consciousness or slightly recognizing consciousness and 20,000 other cases where that does not happen, you just you gather that information and you process it and you make the best decisions you can for your loved one. What do you believe are the biggest misconceptions about end-of-life care? Well, maybe not necessarily a misconception as much as just a lack of understanding or maybe not even that, just a need for communication. We're such a can-do, solve kind of people in the U.S. We have such a belief in technology. There is sometimes an unrealistic belief that technology and the doctor using that technology can fix any problem that we have. And often the doctors can do miraculous things with the tools that they have, but mortality continues at 100% for all human beings. It comes to all of us at some point or another. And the idea that we can keep death and dying away forever so that we don't need to talk about what we want when we reach that point, I think is one misconception. And, And the need there to me is obvious that we talk about these stories and we talk with our loved ones so that we prepare them, even when they have information, uh, what is a very hard time for families. But when they're without information, I I think we leave our families and people we care about in a position that we, we really should not leave them in. As an attorney, do you believe the courtroom is ever the best place to settle issues regarding end of life care? Over the years, I've talked with judges from all spectrum of the political world, from the far right, from the far left, who have had these so-called right-to-die cases. I've never talked with a judge who says, I, as a judge, have a particular expertise in this area, so bring the issues to me. I will decide them. They all say exactly the opposite. The law and the courts have no expertise to decide these questions. I mean, that's what courts do. They decide disputes when the rest of us can't work them out among ourselves. But I find that if the cases made it into the court system, then all of the parties involved, the doctors, the family, they've really lost the dispute because it's not really about the courts. It's about caring people trying to make what are complicated decisions as uh, as best they can. Has your book Unplugged been used at medical schools or law schools? Well, I certainly lecture a fair bit at medical schools, and I, I know there are people around the country in bioethics programs and in medical ethics programs who have used both parts of the book and the full book as the text for the students, uh, which I think is great. I'm not sure I could get through law school if I went back today. I'm confident I couldn't ever make it through medical school, but there's so much for people in these schools to learn these days, and this is yet another component of their education, but an important component as we look at the demographics of the baby boomers and the graying of our country and the advance of technology. We're really going to be talking 
as a society all the time in the years ahead about these hard questions. Where can our listeners find a copy of the new paperback of Unplugged? Uh, certainly at the online sellers, Amazon and others online, and, and uh, Barnes and & Noble and local bookstores will have uh, copies of it too, and um, be delighted for anyone to, to pick it up. I'm I think the stories are uh, hopefully interesting uh, in and of themselves. They are. I've read the book, and I can say that personally. It's a great, great book. I appreciate that. Mr. Colby, thank you for joining us today to discuss your book, Unplugged, Reclaiming Our Right to Die in America, which won the American Medical Writers Association Medical Book of the Year Award and is now out in paperback. As always, good to be with you, Susan. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD library. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, features a special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry.